0: Welcome to Finding The Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euroz Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding The Front host, Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to what is another really exciting episode of Euros Hartleys Finding the Front. As our listeners would know, Euros Hartleys is a proudly Western Australian company that provides a diversified wealth management and financial services offering. Another part of the business that is an important part of the fabric of the organisation is a belief and passion to give back to our Western Australian community which I would just like to touch on before we introduce our very special guest. The Euros Hartleys Foundation was formed in 2006, which enabled the business to make distributions to worthy charities and contribute to the broader Western Australian community. The funds of the foundation continue to contribute and make a difference to Western Australian charities. During the past 16 years, our foundation has donated over $3 million to a broad range of charities in Western Australia. If you would like to learn more about the Euros Hartleys Foundation and the broad range of charities we have supported, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This episode is an absolute ripper. We are very lucky to have an awesome opportunity to spend some time in conversation with someone who has built what is an amazing corporate career as a professional non-executive director over many years across a wide range of directorships across different entities, industries and geographies. She has inspired many with her achievements, the roles she has played and her drive to make a difference. I am speaking of our very special guest, which is none other than Diane Smith-Gander. The recently appointed chair of private health insurer HBF, current chair of leading drilling services company DDH1, current chair of buy now pay later company Zip, national chair of the Committee for Economic Development in Australia, independent chair of the nominations committee for the World Anti-Doping Agency and former director of companies such as West Farmers where she was a member of this board for some 11 years and former president of the preeminent women's advocacy group, Chief Executive Women, representing senior women leaders from the corporate, public service, academic and not-for-profit sectors. In the 2019 Queen's Birthday Honours, Diane was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in recognition of her distinguished service to business, to women's engagement in executive roles, to gender equality, and to the community this is such a wide-ranging conversation where Diane shares with us her experiences in life from growing up in Alfred Cove WA to school education and the massive amount of accumulated experience she has learned and gained through a hugely decorated corporate career which is still going this really is a privilege so without further ado it gives me a huge amount of pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, Diane Smith-Gander. Welcome, Diane, to Finding the Front. It's a real privilege to have you on the show. So thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks, Tim. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, Great, great. Well, on behalf of Euros Hartley's, we we are really excited to have the privilege. I know we've tacked a little bit with Danielle, but now we've got a time and it's great to have you. So look, one of the things that I just wanted to highlight with regards to your role in life is that you've been, you had such an amazing career and you really are an inspiration to many aspiring women and men around Australia. And I think that's a given and I'm going to get to that in time. Part of the Finding the Front podcast is to provide our listeners an opportunity just to get to know you and the background around our corporate leaders, and in this case you, and learn about the experiences and moments in your life that's shaped you. And I have done a bit of homework around where you've grown up, and I noticed that you grew up in Easter Remantle, is that right?
2: Well, Alfred Cove.
1: Alfred Cove, right. Yeah, near enough. Yeah, yeah. And so back then, when you were growing up in Alfred Cove, tell us a little bit about that. And I'm just interested... How big was your family? What did your mum and dad do? That sort of thing.
2: So my mum and dad were married in the 1950s. They were lifelong partners. And they bought a block of land that hadn't been cleared in Alfred Cove. Canning Highway was through, but there was still off-road to get to their block. They had had an unstable financial sort of background in their families, things that hadn't gone well. They'd both been in regional Western Australia and ended up in Perth because that's where the families needed to go for medical care and financial reasons and so forth. And so mum and dad were really motivated to not have a family until they had a roof over their heads that they could call at least partly their own. So mum and dad were married for seven years before I came along as the oldest child and that was a bit unusual in the 50s. Right. Mum of course had to leave work when she became pregnant but they built the house that I grew up in with their actual very own hands because bricks were still a war war supply and so in the early 50s they were in short supply and when dad toddled off to Midland Brick to try to buy some bricks he was told there was a five-year wait and that wasn't on their plan so they made a cement mixer and they made the bricks by hand sunbaked cement blocks mum made the last four thousand by herself because dad was laying the bricks so they had friends and family help out they laid the slab themselves and they got the house to plate height before they could get a loan from the bank and then finished it off it's different when you grow up in a house where you've got the photographic evidence of mum and dad you know having made it themselves that's pretty inspiring
1: yes that would have had a big impact on you growing up.
2: You know, mum and dad just got on with things. You know, they are the definition of people who see a gap yeah. and fill it. They've both passed now and I miss them every day. I think as everyone does, you know, with, with their parents, there are still times when I think oh, I must tell mum that or dad that because they did shape me enormously. Mum was in a typing pool and dad was apprenticed as a boilermaker but they both ended up as educators. Many people in Western Australia still come up to me and my brother Craig. Craig thinks he's most famous for being Betty Smith Gander's son. (laughs) I think that's probably right. Um, Mum was a deputy principal at Santa Maria for decades. She worked there for 26 years. You know, not bad for someone that's left school at 15 and started in the typing pool at what's now RSM Bird Cameron. It was CP Birds in those days. And They just always were looking forward, trying to improve themselves, um, you know, and both ending up as educators. Was your
1: dad a professional sprinter?
2: He was. And that's an interesting story too. Uh, And it tells a lot about, you know, how my father shaped me. So dad could run even time, you know, 110 yards in 11 seconds or better. And he started competing as a professional sprinter because Surf Life Saving Australia rubbed him out from amateur competition because he earned a bit of money running the boundary at the Waffle. Uh, Dad then went on to umpire in the Waffle Gosh, for 40 one. years. It was really <laughs> tough, you know, um, because Dad earned more money running the boundary than he did as an apprentice. And, you know, he's trying to build a house and get a family going. Yeah. Um and he was a really gifted athlete. And so it's, it was a great shame for him. But he did move on to professional sprinting and he had a bit of success and he won some money at that. And that all contributed to the family coffers. But 40 years he umpired in the waffle and he went from the boundary to the centre in the days when there was only one umpire in the centre. Yes, yes. Uh, and then he finished up in goals. Dad felt the injustice of that being rubbed out of amateur. Um, competition at surf, you know, particularly deeply. He was a beach sprint champion in Swanee, Netherlands, and I think he would have gone a very long way. You know, he would have potentially, you know, translated that into Commonwealth Games appearances, this sort of thing. And one of the biggest driving factors for my father was when something was unfair, if it was unjust. And he really gave that to me, and it's one of my biggest drivers. And it's why I have ended up much later in life as such an advocate for gender equity and for other people that are discriminated against it comes from my dad's reaction to his experience as a,
1: as a young man. Thanks for sharing that, Diane. It, it's an interesting point that your dad went from boundary to centre to goal. So he went through the whole generation of umpiring opportunities. He must have loved his footy.
2: He loved his footy. He commentated for a short period <laughs> when we lived really? in, um, in Kalgoorlie. I, I think he was a much better umpire than he was a commentator. No, but w- we got shoved off to, um, shoved off I should probably say, it's a polite term, uh, off to Kalgoorlie in the middle of a nickel boom. Our dad had qualified as a trades teacher. I was 10 at the time. And, you know, I had been at a big primary school in Melville so big that you didn't get to play team sports until you were in grade six and seven. And I went off at the end of grade five. So I didn't know the rules of netball or any of those sorts of things. And at the first week in my new primary school, where I wasn't landing too well, we had qualification for netball. And of course, I didn't know the rules. So I ended up in the worst team, um, you know, the lowest graded one. We didn't have a coach. We had none of that. Well, You know, I've told you my parents saw a gap, they'd filled it. So the next thing you know, mum's making the uniforms for the worst team and dad's become the coach. Well, that lasted the whole way through the season. We actually won by a country mile in our grade because dad was able to cobble together the collection of misfits, which was pretty much all the Indigenous kids that were in the school plus me. Yes. And we were all athletically gifted. So we were we were a pretty good team by the time Dad had done with us. He's
1: moulded. He's moulded. He but did. he
2: also picked up a book. What did he know about netball? You know, hardly anything. He picked up the rule book, read it from start to finish and whistled the grand final for the A grade. <laughs> and so not only did he umpire the footy, but he umpired the netball.
1: Gosh. Uh, did you have fond memories of being in Kalgoorlie?
2: mixed i'd have to say um for me in the last two years of primary school um, i had been in a really progressive primary school in perth and so i'd actually done the curriculum right so i didn't do anything much in academically in the last two years of primary school but it really showed me mum and dad you know in at full you know gallop buying a two thousand dollar house out on the last street completely renovating it, dad getting involved with people at, you know, his first really big career type job and, you know, being in a syndicate, pegging a, a little claim, you know, north of um, Kalgoorlie where my granddad had actually prospected for gold years and years before and it changed the family. So I look back on that bit and know it was fantastic. It was the place I met my first businesswoman. Really? Geraldine Arda. Now a lot of people in Western Australia know Suzanne Arda, who's a headhunter now, but was the head of the AICD here for a long time. It's her auntie Geraldine, and I can still see Geraldine Arda at the barbecue that the Goldfields Tech held on the Sunday um, before school started, and there was Mum and Dad, and you know me, and my little brother Craig, and this vision, you know, in the best barbecue outfit you're ever going to see, and the you know. <laughs> absolutely amazing presentation and and came over and um, she said to mum oh hello Betty you know welcome it's so nice you know that you're here you know with your husband and you know tell me about you Betty what do you do and mum said what she always said I'm home with the kids but I worked for a long time and she talked about being at the typing pool at Bird Cameron and how she'd progressed there and run the typing pool and Geraldine said, oh, you ran in the typing pool. I said, did you teach the girls to type and improve their typing skills? And mum sort of talked about how bad the typing skills were out of the schools when the girls came and how she had to sort them out and got them all moving and this, that and the other. Upshot, next day, mum was employed at Goldfields Tech teaching typing. No, so no, no, no. thank you, Geraldine. <laughs> you know, she set mum an on her path to to being an educator because it was during the nickel boom. They couldn't get teachers. No. You know, it was the same as it is now. You know, workforce was your big issue. Yes. So Kalgoorlie changed the fortunes of the Smith-Gander family very much for the better. So I look back on it from that point of view with a great deal of fondness.
1: Oh, fantastic. So you ended up moving back, though, to uh, Alfred Cove and attended Melville Senior High School. I did.
2: Yeah. Because mum was teaching at Santa Maria and there's no way I was going there.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) So school as a general rule isolating that little bit where you'd were, you already sort of caught up with what you did in Kalgoorlie. But school as a general rule, you enjoyed? No, it
2: was really difficult for me. Really? Yeah, Yeah, it really was. I'm academically gifted, so, you know, it was relatively easy for me, but I didn't fit in particularly well. Never sort of really found my niche at school. Wasn't a popular kid. You know, probably a bit too opinionated, you know, a bit too sure of some things too quick to grumble about injustice, you know, the thing I talked about getting from my father. Yes. Yeah, so school was not easy for me at all.
1: Academically, you did well?
2: Yeah, I did fine. Yes. Um, you know, I, I'm born late in November right. and, you know, in those days, you know, so I, I finished high school just 17. You know, went to university, you know, still under the legal drinking age. <laughs> Needed a gap year. Didn't get it.
1: We were talking about it earlier, but... One of the questions we like to ask on, on the show is, did you know what you wanted to do when you left school? And I know that you did go on to go to university, but did you have any ideas through your upbringing as to what you might have wanted to do?
2: I thought I might have been a teacher like mum and dad, yeah. but I wasn't really sure. And I did best in science subjects because I had the best teachers in my science subjects. So then I thought, oh, maybe I'd do something in science. So I went into science, but I had a real hankering that I might be a lawyer. Right. But the only reason I thought I was going to be a lawyer was because I had two cousins that I looked up to, you know, and one of them was a lawyer and the other one was an economist, you know, and I thought they were both amazing and they were both at university, had been at university, they are older than me, so I thought, well, I've got to go to university and do something. Yes. So I went into science because it was my best subjects.
1: But that changed after a couple of years, you'd changed in... I dropped out. Well, went into economics. or I dropped out. Dropped, I dropped out, out of university. for a number of years. Right. Yeah, okay. I played
2: basketball. I got married. I travelled. You know, I, I worked in nothing sort of jobs. Yeah, um, and then my husband then pushed me very hard to go back to university, and so I went back to UWA and did an economics degree part time.
1: Right. So I'm glad you touched on basketball because it's such a big feature of your life. You had a f- passion for basketball that took you through to state level.
2: Yeah, I, look, I st- it started in Kalgoorlie. Did it, right. You know, so I was playing netball there and one of dad's mates, you know, I think from school, said, oh, look, you know, your daughter's tall, we need another kid in the basketball team, what do you think? So I, that's how I started playing basketball and I was better at it than I was at netball. And i found mm-hmm. netball very constraining. I don't like the way they cut it into thirds and you're only allowed in bits of it and it's a bit more of a static game. So right. I liked basketball, like the freedom of basketball. And, you know, Smith-Gandis play sport. You know, yes. That's just how it went. Yep. Mum was a great tennis player. Dad was good at everything. And so, you know, basketball was a thing I could be successful at. It was really good for me because as a team sport, and I'm an introvert, I love a one-on-one chat. Yes. I like to go home and draw my energy from a bit of quiet time by myself. So it was really good for me to learn extrovert skills and learn to be part of a team. And it reinforced, you know, what mum and dad had always taught me, that if you put in effort, you get good outcome.
1: Sport also alludes to sporting committees, sporting organisations, that sort of thing. Now, I know that part of that was you could see with your dad and mum, they got right involved. They encouraged that with you? Yeah, they were on every
2: committee, you know, that needed people and you know, you know Alfred Crove. It's a growing community. Everything needed people: the church, the kindergarten, all those committees. And so, when I was eighteen, I was the secretary of the local basketball association, and it was a big job, right? You know, but Mum and Dad thought that was a sort of normal thing to do, and they taught me how to do the role. Um, so that was my sort of first governance outing. Yes,
1: <laughs> that's the foundation. <laughs> Tell me, with the basketball, how did it finish up with your your career? You went on to play for WA?
2: Yeah, I played for WA, but I was not always a certainty. And that taught me a lot as well. Two years in a row, I was reserve. And then another year, I got injured two days before we were travelling. So it was, you know, not the wonderful experience. And when I was reserve, my dad in particular was very firm on me that you behave as if you're going. So a lot of reserves, you know, they get a bit slack about training and so on and so forth, but not this little black duck. (laughs) But it is character forming, you know, when you know you have to participate but you're not going to get there. So it's been a good – that was a good experience for me, learning, you know, to take the rejection of of not making the team but having to face into it by being with the people that had made the team for months and months at daily training sessions.
1: <laughs> character building stuff. Every
2: character building.
1: <laughs> in your future life from there, clearly team though did become quite important because you're you're part of a number of teams. When you look at boards, you look at the organizations you're involved in. Did you take a lot out of that when you talked when you talk about sport, basketball particularly, the the inclusion and you said it did provide you a way of external Externalising and be getting involved with other people.
2: It wasn't really until I was working at Westpac with teams where the task was big right. and hard and really important to the organisation, you know, where the stakes were really high that I, I really learnt what teams were all about and what my role was as both a member of a team and the leader of a team, and you know, particularly the latter. You no, know, so I was at, at Westpac in at a time when. The organisation was completely transforming. You know, the work was coming out of the branches into central sites. Westpac was late to that movement and so we had to get on with it. We were doing a lot of technology change at the same time. And if we got it wrong, it really meant a lot to the organisation, a lot to the people that worked in the organisation and a lot to the customers. You've got 8 million customers, you know, 72,000 staff, you know, 40,000 of them in the retail bank, Huge. And, and you, you're the ones that determine whether the day is going to be a good one or a bad one that really focuses your mind. And I learnt from a, a guy called John Moschel, who had run then lease and became the chairman of the ANZ Bank about how to really think about my team and to get the most out of my team by delegating more and empowering more. And because things are often clear to me, I can see the landscape pretty quickly I come up with an idea. I think it's a great one. And I learnt from John that if you take that idea and you ram it down your team's throat, they are not going to tell you much about where the wrinkles are on that
1: idea. What their thoughts are.
2: Yeah, you become too oppositional by being too clever. And so he taught me a whole lot of techniques about how to really get my team to participate. And that's stood me in great stead right through my career. So. I think sometimes in the boardroom, I'm actually told that as a chairman, I curate too much and don't let you know exactly what my own perspective is. Right. And that's been interesting feedback. It's like, okay, um, you know, reveal your ideas a bit earlier now in the process, which was exactly what John was telling me all those years ago not to do.
1: Gosh. We'll get to Westpac in a moment. I just wanted to quickly go back and just complete your education because you went on to do... Not only your economics major at UWA, but you went on to do an MBA at the University of Sydney. And then you were awarded an honorary doctorate of economics from UWA. That's pretty special.
2: Oh my gosh, getting that honorary doctorate was incredibly special. Um, and it was also very special because Michael Cheney, you know, who I know is someone you've spoken to and someone I have a very high regard for, was the Chancellor at the time and made sure that he was there at the graduation ceremony where I received my honorary doctorate from him. So he oh. conferred it on me. And those are the lovely things uh, in a career, you know, because he's been someone that I've learned a great deal from, sitting around a board table with him at West Farmers and being able to, you know, ask him questions about difficult things I've had in chairmanships that I've had. And particularly when I was chairing broad spectrum, he was a fantastic mentor to me at that point. Yes. Yes. So how how does your education go in their circles? Like you never stop learning. <laughs> I think the minute you stop learning is the time as a director you should hang up your boots and say, Okay, it's not for me anymore.
1: Well, that is a great way to transition into I suppose the next stage of your life where ultimately you started out into a career and That included getting further education in terms of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, Governance, that sort of thing. But he started a career, and that started out with Westpac, and it went to McKinsey. But I just wanted to possibly start with regards to maybe bringing the listeners in to a little bit more context around your career so that when we go through this, we can draw on some of your experiences and insights, which are... Without doubt, very, very interesting and very relevant to to life in general for people looking to get into a director's role or even just a corporate and a senior role, whether it be men or women. And I just want to start, so bear with me, Diane. You're a professional director. You've got a diverse portfolio of directorships across different entities, industries, and geographies. You're an advocate for gender equity and you're a past council member and president of some 13 and a half years, so quite a significant period of time of Chief Executive Women. For those listening who aren't familiar with Chief Executive Women, Australia's preeminent women's advocacy group representing senior women leaders from corporate, public service, academic and not-for-profit sectors. I'll come back to that because there's a lot to do there. Corporately, you're now chair of Buy Now Pay Later company Zip, which is headquartered in Sydney. You're chair of Drilling Services Company, DDH1, headquartered in Perth. Chair of Private Health Insurer, HBF Health, which is Perth. National Chair of CEDA, C-E-D-A, which is the Committee for Economic Development in Australia, head offices in Melbourne. A non-executive director of AGL Energy, based in Sydney. But then we'll go to Education, your Chair of UWA Business School Advisory Board. Further, so you've been active in sports administration is a past chairman of Basketball Australia which is the sports peak body but the key here at the moment is you current. well you were also on the Australian Sports Drug Agency committee but now you currently chair the inaugural nominations committee
2: Yeah the World Anti-Doping for the World Anti-Doping Agency.
1: Anti-Doping Agency Now there is a lot to talk about there in addition You've previously been chair of Safe Work Australia for six years, non-executive director of West Farmers for 11 years, chair of Broad Spectrum, which was formerly known as Transfield Services for six years, and the list goes on, director of committee for Perth for nearly three years. That would have been really interesting. Commissioner of Tourism WA for three and a half years. We talked about this beforehand, but you're non-executive director of CBH for nearly three years. This would have been really interesting as well, non-executive director and deputy chairman of National Broadband Network, group executive for Westpac Banking Corporation, a partner at international management company McKinsey and Company, and general manager for Westpac for some 10 years. Now, I haven't finished, listeners, because I just wanted to highlight this last bit. In 2017, Diane received the Governance Institute of Australia's President's Award for Exceptional Service. And in 2019, for the Queen's birthday honours, Diane was made an officer of the Order of Australia, AO, in recognition of her distinguished service to business, to women's engagement in executive roles, to gender equality and to the community. So to finish this, I just want to say congratulations.
2: Oh, thank you very much. But you know, this is what happens when you start
1: w- working at 20 and wow. 45 years later, you're still at it. Diane. Look, and I, that's why I had to say, bear with me. But <laughs> if we go right back, you've finished university, you've gone and started your career in banking. How did this career unfold? And let's draw back to your influence from your father and, and mum and, and that passion to be a leader. How did it unfold? And what drove you and what were the key points? If we started out just with banking to start with, because that's where you started with Westpac for 10 years.
2: Yeah, I got into banking because I was consulting for about a decade before I took a corporate role at Westpac. And financial services was what I got into because there was a regulatory change. And and when Keating was running the show, he bought in a lot of foreign banks, 16 of them. It wasn't what was expected. And so there was a moment in the market where there was a lot of consulting work. And so I just fell into that consulting work. My marriage broke up. And, you know, as a lot of people do, you want to do something different. I went up to Hong Kong to do a consulting project in banking, got some real direct experience there and so came back and joined Westpac. And I was really fortunate that it was a dreadful moment for Westpac and so that's when organisations get very unfrozen.
1: Just that point, you were there in 1992 Mm. and that's quite a significant time in Westpac's history because Kerry Packer had just become a significant... An agitating shareholder. Exactly. And you had a bit of board movement in that period of time too.
2: Yeah, five directors actually went. And I saw John Urich, who was the chairman at the time. He took over from Eric Neal, who was one of the directors that went as a result of the problems that the bank had. And the role that he took as executive chairman, and he was um, putting the time in and really, you know, stepping up into this leadership role. I remember every time I would interact with him, I always called him chairman. And he said to me a number of times, Diane, it really is time you started calling me John. And I said, I just can't. You're the chairman. And it became to me this really important role that was the backstop of the organisation. You know, in that when things really needed to, the ship really needed to be righted, that was the person that stepped in and got it done. And so I don't mind being called chairman in right. the things that I do because for me, it is a role. And I always think back to John Urich and what he did to ensure that Westpac survived. I firmly believe that without his personal action and the attitude that he took, the organisation would well not have survived. And, of course, he made the decision to bring in Bob Joss, a very different sort of chief executive, and Bob Joss was the one that took me out of the corporate centre and put me in a line job in Queensland and really made my career go. And that in many ways is the big experience that I had where, because I was in the retail bank and I was out with branch staff and customers directly, that I really understood the power of financial services and where it should sit in the life of people and how poorly it was serving them and tried very hard to make lots of change, got dragged kicking and screaming out of that job, but into a role in the centre where I could have more impact because I was involved in designing products and determining how they were going to be put together and what would be the charging levels and so on and so forth. And that's the experience that has brought me to Zip and why I'm so passionate about Zip as a fintech, trying to find better ways for people to build a fearless financial future. So it is interesting how all of these experiences you have bring you back to yes. different places.
1: Were you based in Sydney at the time for this role? So I was in Sydney and then I was in Brisbane, and yep. then I was in Sydney and right. then I was in Melbourne okay. and then I was in
2: Sydney. So it's an Eastern States based. Yeah, Eastern States. And, I, and when Westpac purchased Challenge Bank, I did a FIFO role over. It was actually pretty good fun. You know, I was coming over every week. Yes. And I, I played basketball with my uh, old state teammates in a competition out at Perry Lakes, You know, so <laughs> <laughs> living in Good. Sydney, playing in Perth.
1: During your period with Westpac, you yeah. then joined the Australian Sports Drug Agency.
2: Mm.
1: Now, this was clearly a side gig to your job.
2: Yes. Yeah, so David Morgan was moving into the CEO role around that time and um, he was uh, running the retail bank. So he, he was my boss at one point and there was a woman called Anne Sherry who many people will know very highly regarded prominent Australian businesswoman and she was running HR and so they were looking for different ways for people to get development and so outside directorships in non-conflicting areas was something that they were very keen on yes and with my sporting background they thought it would be good for me you know to to find a board where I would get you know different Sort of stimulus and an understanding of governance, and so I joined the Sports Drug Agency Board and initially chaired the um, Audit and Risk Committee there. And then, when the foundation chair of it, Senator Peter Bohm, left, I became the chair leading into Sydney 2000.
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, I was living in Sydney at that time, and it was an amazing period of time. Sydney was alive, screens everywhere throughout Circular Quay. I mean, it was such a and going to the Olympics.
2: Well, I didn't actually go oh, because no, because I, I had go. left and gone to work at McKinsey. The timing wasn't fabulous. And the Australian Sports Drug Agency was important to me because I learnt very different things there. Because of the way Australia had set up its act for anti-doping, it's very different to other countries. And so athletes coming to Australia for test events were quite confronted by the fact that they could be tested at any point in time with no notice, out of competition—that's the right place when you're at most risk if you are cheating because you don't have the ability to prepare to beat, you know, the testers. And this was a major concern for the IOC and for many sports as to how athletes were going to manage this. And you do have the issue of athletes that may be in jurisdictions where the anti-doping wasn't as well developed and so they don't have the education and the potential for inadvertent use of substances that they're not supposed to be taking, you know, is is much heightened. So there was all of this politics and concern about athlete protection and how we would be able to do that. And so it was a really good development opportunity for me because I saw things from very different angles and a great deal more about the sort of political process. And it's, so it's very interesting for me now to see WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, going through governance evolution and enhancement and becoming even more athlete-centric and to be part of that as the chair of their inaugural nominations committee, you know, the complete independent who reviews the people that they're putting on all their different committees and so has quite an impact over who are going to be the voices at those head governance tables for anti-doping globally.
1: Gosh, Diane, we could possibly just move to the World Anti-Doping Organisation. And has that, is the mandate of that organisation go r- not only at international level, but down into the roots of sport across the world? Like, is it where does the mandate sit for that?
2: Well, you know, WADA is a collaboration between the governments of the world and the sports movement. Right. And so it works through... Um, national anti-doping agencies, regional anti-doping agencies, but it also works in a collaborative fashion with academia around research, around performance-enhancing substances. It has a very strong education committee. And each of those bodies, you know, sort of sees their remit as sport in its entirety. Okay, And so while they may not have direct responsibilities vis-a-vis, you know, grassroots sports, in Australia, the work that they do around that research and education focus in particular is going to be very influential at all levels of sport.
1: The role of technology in this must be getting bigger and bigger. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, keeping an understanding of where athletes are and the ethics of this is a really interesting open conversation in sport at the moment. Should an athlete be required to give their anti-doping national agency the ability to geolocate them based on their phone? You know, this is an interesting ethical question because you want to know where the athletes are all the time and, you know, it used to be a very manual process and now there's system support about how that happens. But, you know, how far do you take that? And so these are the sorts of conversations that occur around the different governance tables in WADA. It's fascinating to hear those conversations. I don't have a part to play because my job is about, you know, finding and assessing and recommending to the, the wider governance bodies who they should put on them. Yes. But it is uh, very interesting to hear the conversation that goes on. Oh,
1: well, we're on sports, you went to Chairperson of Basketball Australia. Could you just give us an insight into what you were able to do with that organisation? And in many ways, you unified the sport. It is the way I perceived it. You just give us a bit of an understanding because it ties well into what you're doing on the wider perspective. It ties well into your background with basketball.
2: It, it was an interesting time for me because the sport was under pressure to unify. And of course, today it is not unified because the National Basketball League, the men's leagues have separated out from Basketball Australia and operate as a separate entity, which is a very good model, I think, for the sport. You know, any sport does need to have a really strong professional showcase. It needs to have, you know, good success for its national teams. It needs to have vibrant grassroots. It's a bit of a three-legged stool. You've got to get those things all in balance. Otherwise, the stool will wobble. Larry Sengstock, who was the CEO of Basketball Australia when I was there, and of course, a storied four-time Olympian and fabulous basketball player, taught me that. Um, He had a very strong philosophy around it. And it was a real delight to to work with him in the time that I was chair. But there was this notion that the unified way was the best way to get the three-legged stool not to wobble. That proved not to be the case. But it was a difficult time because the sport was in some problems, particularly mm. the men's leagues. And a number of the men's teams were not really making money. Of course, the Wildcats in Perth were the poster child for yes. how to get it right. So I did spend quite a bit of time with Nick Marvin, who was running the Wildcats at that stage, and with Jack Bendat, the owner, both of whom um, were very generous with their time. Uh, and we did have some quite disagreements, Nick and I, as well, you know, which is, uh, I think, when you can then have a great relationship going forward is a, a real mark of respect between two people. Um, so I was a chair for a short period of time. I'd actually taken over from David Thodey because he'd had to step aside when he got the top job at Telstra and yes. didn't have the time to do it. Um, but I think sometimes you can be a transition chair where you go in for one term and perhaps you break a few eggs, but hopefully the omelette that you make is tasty <laughs> enough that sometime down the track people will go, yeah, actually that was a good contribution. Um, so I think I was a bit polarising in the time that I was the chair of right. – basketball Australia not so much for me but for the task that had to be done yes but when I look at basketball today and see the continued strength the grassroots participation the boomers going really well you know opals um, and the men's national league adding teams I think I can be well satisfied that Larry and I did a pretty decent job back in the day
1: very interesting at this point in time you're really now starting to forge a career into some pretty serious roles within corporate Australia. And, and the one that stands out is to start with your role with the National Broadband Network. How did you manage to navigate your way into being in that position? Just from, say, from a position of someone aspiring to start their journey in that sort of role. So in this case, you're starting out as a non-executive director and you graduate through to being deputy chairman of something that is of national interest. And I'm just w- interested in how this unfolded.
2: So I think your first question about you know, how do you aspire to something like that and put your case forward to be involved. When I was at McKinsey, um, I worked in uh, transactions. So, uh, post merger management. After two organizations had announced they were going to get together, what do you do next? Right. Um, and, and my job was to, you know, help get the synergies out. You know, make a, a a vibrant one company to come out of two. And you know, I did a lot of this. You know, year after year, many different transactions. And you'd get with a chief executive, and they'd say, "Okay, you know, what's the story? What do I have to do?" And I would say, "Well, actually." It's what you did the last two years, which is going to be way more determinant of how successful you're going to be. So let's understand that. Let's understand how truly acquisition merger fit you are and, you know, step forward. And that's what non-executive directors, you know, bring. They, they bring what they've done in their career in the past. And I think if you want to be a Ned, you need to understand – what it is you actually have to bring to the table. And too many people think that that is about summarising in delightful reverse chronological order all the things that you've ever done and somehow the chairman of the board that you might be aspiring to join or a headhunter is going to, by some process of osmosis, work out what it is that you bring. You know, you know yourself better than anybody else. My great mentor Helen Lynch taught me that. And what she taught me was that I had to take all of my experiences and the skills and the way that I like to work and be able to synthesise that into a statement about why I'm relevant for a particular board. That means that I have to understand not just myself, but also what are the needs of that board. I've got to do work, do diligence outside in before I'm even approached to understand what the strategy is, how they're travelling from a financial performance point of view, how strong is the balance sheet, what opportunities does that create for them going forward. Mackenzie taught me to always have a perspective. And so you need to have that perspective ready to go to be able to describe why you're relevant for a board. And and that was what I did with NBN Co. I looked at it and I thought, wow, you know, the things they're going to be trying to do, standing up this large organisation, that feels a lot like some of the things that I did way back in the day in bringing the work out of the Westpac branches into central sites and the work that we had to do It's sort of a bit of a reverse thing. You know, you're yes. rolling out rather than rolling in. Yeah. Um, and I had been the um, owner of IT and telecommunications from a business point of view in my time in Um, Westpac, and I had done a lot of work in the mergers that I had done around IT and telecommunications. So I felt from a content point of view. um, And so I thought, I think I've got something to say for this particular directorship. Um, And so I actually rang the headhunter and said, how do I get on the list? That was how it
1: happened. (laughs) Is that right?
2: Yeah, and and as it it turned out, someone that I had worked with many years before was in the government department that was, you know... um, doing the work. And, and so when the long list came through of names, this person said, oh, that's an interesting name. How did that name get on? That's that's different, you yes. know, a different sort of thing. And so I've, I probably owe a lot to Smith Gander, <laughs> once <laughs> written down, never forgotten.
1: <laughs> Tell me, Diane, when you were on the NBN board, there was a lot of conjecture around the rollout. Okay, how do you, um, you know, cost pressures – where's it going, speed, all these things that, do you see that from a board side as relevant to your role or is it more of a management role in terms of these underlying things that are always raising this, raising their head in the press, for example?
2: Well, that particular board, you know, you're thinking about an entity which has one shareholder, you know, the Commonwealth of Australia and – There are two shareholder minister representatives, one from the Department of Communication and one from the Department of Finance. And they give you really a statement of expectations and you have to abide by that. Now, you can put a different perspective and have um, a point of view. At the end of the day, you have to work with that shareholder It's no different to the way the Keystart board operates because there is a single shareholder in the uh, state of Western Australia. Um, And you need to understand your director's duties very clearly and your responsibility to protect the entity and act in the best interests of the entity. But the shareholder, you know, will have their perspective on what that best interest is and you know, clearly you need to have the right conversation with them. So it, it did teach me a lot about how to make sure that you did cut the delineation between what management are responsible for, what the board is responsible for, and then the voice of the shareholder.
1: Right, right. Very interesting. I note that when I introduced you, we, we said a diversified portfolio. Well, we jumped from telco to CBH, grain. And yeah, you know, there's a little bit of overlap there. You had the roles at Concurrent times and CBH was an interesting cooperative at the time when you were on it. You combine that with the National Broadband Network, and there's a is there synergies around those two in terms of anything that you could draw on? Well, I'm not sure I'd describe
2: it as synergy, but you know, CBH diversified my portfolio for sure because it was agriculture, it was a different segment, it was a cooperative, you know, so a different form of organisation, you know, with members rather than shareholders, you know, it's on a slightly different approach there. But I'm a West Australian, you know, first and foremost. Yes. And so, you know, it was very attractive to me to have a directorship that was so important to the West Australian economy. But it's the West Australian thing for me. Yes, right. And how does that develop? Well, that develops for all of us because of our geographic isolation. Yes, And, you know, that great big barrier of the Nullarbor Plain and how, you know, we have our resources, industries and and a very different sort of economy and the feeling, you know, that in some ways we're sort of on our own and there isn't as much connection, you know, to the East Coast. I think you just somehow soak that up in Western Australia. It's just a fact of of living here and, and being here. You know, and I always knew I was coming back to Western Australia. And so many people, you know, that I speak to that have left Western Australia for business careers or other reasons. And they all have, you know, of course I'm going back. I'm going to get back home one day. It is an interesting dynamic.
1: Oh, absolutely. They've had a absolutely good time of it at CBH in the last year. Yes. Record crops.
2: Yeah, they've had record crops. You know, I think they've had a couple of really interesting leadership changes, you know, putting Jimmy Wilson in from resources. You know, he ran BHP Iron Ore, bought a very different focus, really strong logistics and operations. And obviously, you know, Ben McNamara now came out of that operations stream, but someone who was an investment banker. Started his days as an an accountant. So I think CBH is well-placed to continue to be a real West Australian champion.
1: Yes. It's a great point you make about the geographic isolation that we have in Western Australia. And you're probably... As good of authority as anyone to talk about tourism, being on the Tourism WA Commission and the Committee for Perth, mm. which flows in from your roles at CBH. How did you, sitting around the committee with tourism, what are the sorts of things that you could throw in the air to get people to come over to Perth and make it attractive for them, make them stay, that sort of thing, spend yeah. money?
2: Perth's isolation is very interesting. Yes. Yes. Because while we have been, you know, the tyranny of distance for a very long time, the weight of the world's growth and consumption increases and so forth is moving very much closer to us because of Asia. And I was at a Cedar event actually just yesterday having a chat hearing John Langland, who was a Cedar board member with me actually, who was the one that suggested that I might, might join the Cedar national board. He's an agent general in London now for the state of Western Australia. And we're having a a very interesting conversation about where our trading partners and our tourists and, and this external outreach should come from because we look at China very, very close but very different values. John was pointing this out very clearly and I thought that is such an insightful point of view. He's been spending a lot of time over the last year while he's been the Agent General, you know, 16 different cities in Europe assessing, you know, where are the opportunities for Western Australia? Who are the people that might come visit? And that values alignment to the UK, to countries like Germany. Very interesting you think about how do you balance that values versus the economics of the different distances. So I think that's a conversation that we do have to have with ourselves. We are going to be able to diversify our economy and attract tourists if we make Western Australia, we make Perth a direct entry point. So when I was on the Tourism Commission, it was very clear to us that the direct flights, Perth, London, Perth, Rome, Perth into the UAE, absolutely critical. And so I think the focus that government has here on increasing the number of direct flights we have is absolutely spot on because that's the impediment. You get to Sydney and it's still a very, very long way Yes, over here to, to WA. So those direct connections are what we have to build and there's nothing more visible than a direct flight.
1: Your point around getting here is, is that the biggest hurdle? Because we all know it's such a beautiful state. There is so much to offer and so much to see. Is the role of the commission in this particular instance to become very good friends with all the airlines and be able to get that direct flight? Like, for example, the direct flight to Rome is just in, has been a fantastic initiative. So, just talking about airlines and getting involved with airlines, these direct flights. How do we make sure we're on their thought process around making sure we're direct to wherever we can go?
2: Well, I mean, that's really the the job of the tourism commission and the you know the department that they. Sit in. What's really important, I think, is that when people get here, they actually get a good experience. I remember going to a tourism roundtable, and Adrian Finney's father was there, and he is an icon of you know property development, hospitality, in uh, in this state. And he told a you know story, sort of said, you know, if someone comes around your house, you make sure you know how many visitors you've got. You make sure there's enough seats for everyone to sit. You make sure you have enough wine, glasses, enough food. You clean the house before they come. You put some flowers around. You make it all very welcoming. You get ready. So the problem with Western Australia when it comes to tourism is that we call out and say, look, it's fantastic. Isn't it amazing? Oh, look, we've got a direct flight. Nothing else is ready. Right. You turn up And there's not enough taxis, there's not enough buses because, oh, we've had another nickel boom and everyone's gone FIFO, you know. So this Dutch disease of boom and bust and we're hell for leather on resources all the time. But then when there's a bit of a a downturn, we put the gas pedal on, on our other industries, particularly tourism, and all the tourists get whiplashed because the gas pedal goes on, it goes off, it goes on, it goes off, and that's not a way to diversify an economy in a sustainable way. So we need a lot more thoughtfulness about where we put the investments and, and to do it in a more sustained fashion.
1: Yes. Uh, thanks for that. Perth being the hub, do you think we've got potential to be able to become like a, a gateway into Asia and turning it into more? I think Perth's got huge potential, but we've also got
2: quite a lot of challenges. You know, we are a very spread out city, you know, 150 kilometres top to bottom. When you think about the sort of infrastructure that you need to have a city that's shaped like that with everyone clinging along the coast, it's a very expensive city to run. I remember when Sue Murphy was running the Water Corp, she told me if we had our city as an infilled sort of circle, like a ball, rather than a long skinny thing, we would have enough water pipe for a population of 33 million people. So we've got, you know, two and a half million people funding water infrastructure that in another, you know, geographic construct could serve 15 times as many people. Right. So some of those decisions that we've made around how to structure our city, which is the sort of thing the Committee for Perth spends a lot of time thinking about, haven't been really very helpful. So I think. We also have a lot of very small local government areas and I would love to see our state government step up to have another go at that consolidation, which was tried a while ago and failed, and step up against some of the barriers to changing our landscape. You know, there are a lot of particularly little old ladies living in very large houses in suburbs like my mum and dad were in Adderdale in their retirement home where there's lots of excess bedrooms. We know we don't have enough housing. How can we release those excess bedrooms so that people are, you know, able to um, access more affordable housing? Well, a really good way would be to get rid of stamp duty and move on to land tax. Right. You know, CCIWA did a, a big report recently that just showed how impactful that would be. And I think we've got a budget that's well in surplus and we've now got a lot of firepower to address some of these Sacred cows that we haven't addressed. And I would really like to see our state get very bold. Yes. You know, courageous about some of these things. You know, now now is not the moment for half-heartedness.
1: Diane, just progressing through your roles in terms of where you've been chair, you alluded to this earlier, but your role with Transfield Services, which rebranded into broad spectrum. And d- in doing some reading, this was not a straightforward role as chair. In terms of what broad spectrum we're looking to do, and my limited look at it was that you were providing contract services into for the Australian federal government into the regional processing centres or detention centres, correct? That's right. Yeah, and then also that included Nauru and PNG, in Manus Island. That's right. Can you give us a bit of an insight into this board role and your role as chair here, and just and how that evolved and the challenges?
2: So, Broad Spectrum had a long track record of providing difficult contract services in remote locations for government in particular, but also, you know, for corporates. And the range of services went from the sort of mops and buckets facilities management type in to really technical offshore work in, you know, maintenance of platforms and so forth. So, it was a very interesting company from that point of view and had done a lot of work with the Commonwealth Government in a number of departments, you know, education, defence and so forth. And as the leadership moves from one government department to another, you know, they have a tendency to, you know, look at, well, that was a very useful way of providing services in the previous department, what could the benefit be here? And there were some other contractors operating Manus and Nauru and things were not going particularly well and so we were asked to very quickly stand up teams to try to improve the circumstances and we were able to do that and do that very successfully. The issue, of course, was, as we all know, the idea behind those regional processing centres was that the governments in Nauru and Papua New Guinea would work to do the assessments of whether People were genuine asylum seekers or not, you know, working with the Australian departments and that would provide, you know, some streams of income and some capability building for those nations and it would provide a way of then allowing the Australian government to work on the resettlement of the genuine asylum seekers into appropriate locations and that was the bit that failed, of course. Uh, finding those appropriate locations and places where people would be able to go, and everything took longer, you know, as it often does. Yes, you know, as a result, you know, activists were very rightly pointing out that holding people for such long periods of detention was, you know, a, a real question mark around whether this was appropriate in a human rights setting. And I think we can all say putting someone away out of society for nine years, no. There's just no case to be made. And so you end up in a tricky situation as a corporate that you've been put on to do a, a contract to support people who are supposed to be flowing through the environment in an 18-month maximum sort of time frame, and that's not happening. So you obviously have to provide the services in a different way to try to at least mitigate those risks and have the client understand how, how they can, in this case, the client being the government. But activists will look to put pressure in wherever they can put pressure and so there was a very active divestment campaign where pressure groups were saying to our shareholders what these people are doing is inappropriate so you should divest of their shares and you should have you know direct engagement with them about them repudiating this work and so you know for us we had two and a half thousand people flying in and out of those sites with a workforce that we were localising but also you know quite a few thousand people relying on the services that we were providing you know their facilities management catering but also you know welfare services around you know education and you know giving people an active day so you're trying to balance all of these things and the board needed to think very carefully about you know what were the right settings there and we also spent a lot of time in ensuring that the way that we were providing the services were going to be appropriate. So it taught me a great deal about risk management and how to actually validate and verify um, to a legal standard that you are doing the right thing, the thing that you said you're going to do and they're giving the people the skills and the capabilities that they need to be able to meet the standards that you're setting for them. So all the conversations we have these days about respect to work and me too and so forth, that all of that resonates with me. And I think I'm well ahead of understanding that because we had to get yes. around that back in 2015, 16 with these issues on Manus and Nauru. And it became a chairman and a board. It wasn't a management issue. When it starts to become activists around a divestment campaign, that is very much a board issue. And so the CEO and I worked very carefully with the board to work out what I would do, what he would do, who would be saying what in what settings. But it was a time when I think I became much more visible in governance circles and where I developed the reputation for being someone that could take a very difficult situation and bring some good, consistent thought and some calmness to it and map a way forward, which is why I think some of my other
1: directorships have come to me. Goodness, that that is really interesting. You would have learned a lot in that space of time. We're talking talking six years.
2: Yeah, that was a time when the world really changed a lot for me. And I I find this, you know, when I have a number of really big things happening, you are very uncomfortable. Of course, you feel stretched. You've got to think about, how do I prioritise my time? Who gets what, you know, when there are these competing priorities? But it's also the time where I think you... Learned the most. The most. More uncomfortable you are, the more you're learning. And so, you know, just like when I dropped out of university and I was doing, you know, a bunch of things and trying to get a a degree and renovate a house and work out what marriage was all about and work out how to be a reject <laughs> and reserve on the state basketball team. And you know, you you learn how to do all of that. And then then I find myself in this setting where I've got the broad spectrum chairmanship. I'm a West Farmers director. And I'm finding my voice on gender advocacy. you know. So it was at that time that I was president of Chief Executive Women. So yes. all of that was really busy, but that's where actual synergy did happen because you build relationships with different stakeholders and you see different ways of managing things and you can bring it to each of those directorships. So that was a really high growth period for me where I, I built the...
1: Personal development.
2: Yeah, real and built the platform for the things that I'm doing now and what I aspire to do for the next 15 to 20 years.
1: You talked about your role with West Farmers. You loved it, clearly. You were there for 11 years. And what did you take away from working with such an iconic organisation? Yeah, I
2: mean, how can you fail to not be so attracted to a directorship like West Farmers, you know, a company that's been around for more than 100 years that's transformed itself from a farmers' cooperative into, you know, a really storied listed company, you know, in, in the top twenty companies in Australia by market capitalization. At one time when I was on the board, we were the largest private sector employer with more than two hundred thousand people. You touch the lives of so many people. That's like I was saying yes. about my time at at Westpac, I, I think I am very motivated by companies that are able to make things better for people, for their employees, their customers and, you know, for the nation in general. And West Farmers has such a strong ethos around making the places that it is better and being thoughtful about where to make its community contributions. You know, think about the arts in Western Australia would be nowhere near as vibrant if it wasn't for West Farmers Arts and the things that West Farmers has chosen to do. But chosen to focus in that area and be really meaningful and I think that is what West Farmers does so well is it chooses its focus areas, it chooses where to play, it chooses where not to play and it is a very transparent and open organisation so the standards of reporting and and I think that's what made it such an appealing place for me to stay for such a long time was because it does change you know because it sells businesses, it buys businesses, it builds new divisions but it does it in a very transparent and open way and in a technically very excellent way with a great care for its people.
1: So during this period, you were also with Chief Executive Women and you were also awarded the Queen's Honours. What an honour at that period of time it was to yeah. receive that. And did you feel just very special? And-
2: well, I did. I mean, my mother had an OAM for her services to Red Cross. Right. And, you know, I I remember her delight and my father's delight for her when she received it. And for me, getting an AO with a citation including my work towards gender equity and the group that I received my award in was had the largest proportion of women at that time. And so it was all sort of starting to happen around there. And I just felt it was a recognition not only of me, but also of the fact that things were going to become more just for women and all the way along things were going to get better, that the trajectory of travel was such that, you know, it would be unstoppable and it might be beyond my lifetime when we achieve real equity, but women will sort of eventually
1: get there. The citation, distinguished service to business, to women's engagement in executive roles, to gender equality and to the community. Fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, And I I pinch myself sometimes, you know, someone said to me the other day, what do you you think that 17-year-old kid, you know, going to UWA would think about you today? You know, I think she'd be absolutely shocked, but sort of pleasantly surprised at how the whole thing played out. And, you know, some people say to me, what's the secret? You know, how did you build the grand plan? You know, and I was like, no, there was no grand plan. I I really did think I was going to get a degree, get a sort of interesting job, get married, have a couple of kids maybe, you know, but definitely get married. And, you know, and I just didn't see any of it. It has evolved over time. And and part of it is because my parents put the default setting of you say yes rather than no. So there are certainly times when I have said, oh, sure, yes, I'm happy to do that, when I've thought, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> like, and also as a woman of a certain age, you do reflect on oh, if I say no, they might not even offer me another opportunity ever again, because women are expected more than men to say yes to things because we are supposed to be the nurturing ones and the ones that put ourselves out, the ones that do more unpaid work, that do things for free, and so there is that setting for for women of my age and that bit of concern that well maybe they won't ask me again because they will assume I'm not interested. Full stop. That part of it's been tricky, you know. Yes, <laughs> I was talking to a group of young men in. Utah, at the University of Utah, in a fraternity and about leadership. And there were questions at the end. And, you know, these are 19, 20 year old men, hard for them to quite work out what to ask a woman like me. And so one of them <laughs> asked that sort of question that you get when no one knows what to so say. said, Well, what's the most difficult challenge you've ever had? And sometimes, just in the moment, the truth comes out. And out of my mouth came being a woman that's the most difficult challenge i've had in business is actually being a woman and going through the uncertainty of how do i react in this setting if i react this way what will it mean you know and of course men have the same thing you know as they're trying to build their career and they're asking themselves about what opportunities they should take but i think it's at a visceral level for women because we have this What will my style say about me? What will I'm wearing say about me? You know, the sort of words I use because we get this feedback all the time. Yes. And so you do understand that double bind, that you are expected to be a certain way and often you're casting about to try to find out what way that is supposed to be. And then you sort of get some feedback and you share that feedback with one of your female colleagues and they say, oh, that's really weird because they told me exactly the opposite. So then you're sitting there going, oh, we're not quite sure how we're supposed to be. But (laughs) yes, being a woman has been challenging. A woman in business, it has been challenging.
1: Gosh, Diane, thank you for sharing this. And and does it go deeper than that when you're going for these roles? Has gender been a problem?
2: It's no longer a problem because I think that, you know, my track record now speaks for itself in a lot of ways. And I'm much clearer about what I'm at and what are the opportunities that I should be prepared to uh, to go for. But in the past, I think gender has been a bit of a blocker and an issue. And it will still continue to be this way until we really normalize women in sort of fifty percent of roles and we normalize, you know, women's style as not needing to be different to men's. Because yes. I think at core, men and women are not actually wired that differently. It's the diet of experiences that you have that makes you react, that
1: builds your style. Your role with Chief Executive Women is a passion. I can tell that. I can tell that straight out from your body language and the way that you talk about it. Role of women in leadership, the role of women supporting women in pursuit of their ambitions, and then not only that, but demonstrating leadership. You can be what you can see that sort of thing. And the leadership programs that you've put in place over a long period of time through this organisation have been very well received. Tell us a little bit about Chief Executive Women. And you've, you've spent 13, 14 years of your life there.
2: Well, I've been a member for that long. You know, Chief Executive Women was started over 30 years ago by Barbara Kale. She was an entrepreneur because she couldn't get a role in corporate Australia commensurate with her skills and experiences as she saw it. She started a business magazine for women. She interviewed the seventeen women she could find who she thought were really senior female business leaders in Australia, including my my mentor Helen Lynch in, in that group, Carla Zampati, Amelda Roche, uh, who started Nutramedics with her husband Bill, uh, Valet Bill just recently passed. And she got them together for lunch to thank them for being in her magazine and they decided to form Chief Executive Women.
1: Is that right? That's how it started. That's how it
2: started. And the first thing that they did was they decided to put their hands in their own pockets and start a scholarship fund. And the first person who got a scholarship was Helen Conway who went offshore somewhere to study something that her company probably should have sent her to and she became the first head of the Workplace Gender Equity Agency. Now there are 800 members. My period of the presidency, um, fifteen to seventeen was about getting an equal dialogue with men, getting an equal share of voice, because at that stage Liz Broderick, a very good CEW member, had started the Male Champions of Change as part of her role as the sex discrimination commissioner. And men were having a lot to say about gender equity and I thought women should have at least as much to say, if not perhaps a little bit more, because we had the most to gain. And as fifty one percent of the population, we should have fifty one percent of the you know, powerful positions, et cetera. And so that's what my presidency was about. But, you know, the thing is, it's 2022 now. That's 2015. We're talking seven years. And people talk about me as if I had spent my entire life on the barricades. Well, I didn't. You know, I was about making my career as successful as it could be. And sure, I was a role model. I knew that. Yes. Because there weren't very many senior women around in many of the places that I was. But I was not out and loud and proud all the time because I knew that if I did that, I wasn't going to get the outcome I was looking for. You know, if I was the one that was always saying it wasn't fair or we needed more women here or this, that or the other or don't talk that way, it just went underground. Right. And you didn't get you know, to where you needed to be. And it was really only after I had been on the West Farmers Board for a number of years and had a number of these roles that I felt I could stand up as the President of Chief Executive Women and say it very loud. So yes. I'd been doing lots of more community service things and, you know, involved with pro bono activity and so forth. And and I think that was the underlying theme of my Australian honour. But I did actually get a lot done in that period between, you know, when I started at, at CW and around twenty fifteen, I was on the board before, but then, you know, between then and you know twenty nineteen, when I, I received my honour, so I, I, it is interesting how you can look back and think at the actual reality yes. of how much time you've spent on on this topic, but how people
1: see it. But it did clearly shape you in terms of where it's directed you going forward with that honour. Did you would you say combined with your role with with that group?
2: You know, the honour did make me think about, you know, the importance. And the impact that you've had? Yeah, yeah. and the and the importance of that role modelling, you yeah. know, and I had never been one to put my hand up for awards. No. But I'm in the WA Women's Hall of Fame, which I think is lovely. I don't know who uh. nominated me for that. And I have a Western Australian of the Year Business Award, you know, at one point. And so I've got a lot more comfortable with having those things and talking about them and, and encouraging women to nominate other women. and So I always have one order of Australia nomination on the go. Right. Because I think as an award winner, you should try to nominate people and I do tend to nominate women, although I did did nominate a man recently. I think very deserving and can't understand why he hasn't already got an, got an honour. But I think you need to participate in these things.
1: Yes, yes. Just moving forward and we're... We're sort of in bringing us into current day, but you've just recently taken on the chair role for HBF. That's right. Yeah, that's exciting.
2: Yes, the cocker is fabulous. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, I'm a very strong West Australian. So I'm very pleased to be involved with HBF. But, you know, health is such an important area. And haven't we seen that through the pandemic? Yes. But, you know, I just believe that our health system, while it is one of the best in the world, you know, our health outcomes are fabulous. Now, we do have a lot of problems with our Indigenous population. The gap there is just completely unacceptable and really absolutely needs to be dealt with. But it's pretty clear to me that unless we have some major reform and major change, We are not going to be able to continue with the fabulous health outcomes that we have had and the cost of healthcare is going to be such that not everybody will be able to afford it. And having spent eight years living in the United States, I know what that looks like. Yes. And I like the way it looks over here way better than the way it looks over there. So, you know, I think sometimes I sort of feel, oh, there's so many different issues and so many things I'm passionate about. But, But at the end of the day, I think it is all driven by this, let everyone have a fair opportunity. You know, I I believe in equal opportunity. I don't think that always leads to equal outcome. But there are some areas where we have to be more focused on equity of outcome. And health is one of those because from a purely pragmatic point of view, if you just put the social justice thing to one side, if you think about the economics, a healthy population is way cheaper to run than an unhealthy population. And so we... uh, we need to really start focusing on on how we can make the change. Our federation doesn't help us. I think net net federation is a positive benefit for Australia, but when it comes to health, the delineation between the funding and who is responsible for what decisions, I don't think is right and needs a complete overhaul. And certainly, you know, some of the ways that we think about private hospitals versus public hospitals, and you know, the cost of care, and then also you know, we have legacy hospitals, they like to have their beds filled, and that may not be necessarily the right way to treat, you know, particularly some of our more rapidly growing issues like mental health. I'm not sure that inpatient overnight stay hospital is the right place and setting for improvement in mental health outcomes. So, um, you know, it's different issues that I focus on, but I think they all have this
1: underlying thread. It's an interesting point you make around the cost because the cost is going to translate into the premium. Correct. Right. And the premium is becoming more and more difficult for the everyday Western Australian to pay.
2: Well, I think affordability across so many things needs to be a really key consideration for us. And, you know, the premium that a private health insurance member pays They need to think about what that looks like in terms of the payout ratio that they receive over the life of their insurance policy. And so helping people to understand that equation, you know, making people more financially literate on all sorts of levels, I think is very important to us as a society, very important for women in particular, you know, who are the ones who do end up with, you know, higher rates of end of life type poverty. We know that women over 55 are the largest growing segment of homelessness, for example. So clearly something going wrong when superannuation outcomes are so different, you know, men to women and so forth. And I think that conversation about private health insurance and how does that work and how do I think about my long-term cost of health as an individual, you know, we don't equip our kids at school well enough to start thinking about that. We don't have good communication and education about it. So. You know, another big topic. It hey? does. <laughs> we could talk for a long time. We on could that. indeed.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to also, when we talk about current day, your role as chair of DDH One, the diversity of this portfolio just keeps in, intriguing me. We've gone now from health to drilling services in, well, in know, Western Australia, and it. And I know it, it sort of stems back to your role, and and what you do is you are a professional non-executive director that sits on boards and in many cases chair them because you're very good at what you do. Your role with DDH1, when you look in this and you've got a an aggregation of drilling businesses together that are forward looking when you look at the mining sector, you know, they're out there drilling the the ground.
2: Yeah, look, DDH1, what a great story. Really good West Australian company that's a national champion and will be an international champion, you know, with the acquisition of SWIC, the underground mining outfit, you know, brings us um, contracts in Europe and uh, in uh, North America. But look at Western Australia. I mean, it sort of seems if there's any mineral you need, anything that you're going to dig out of the ground, and it's something that's important, Western Australia will have more of it in higher quality deposits than anybody else. You know, how does that happen? We are just so fortunate here to have that amazing set of resources and, and DDH works on finding those and then helping people, you know, exploit the production of them in the most cost-effective manner. You know, what is the commonality across all of these things? Well, I'll tell you there's one bit of commonality is that the shareholders, the advisors, the current board sought to ask me if I'd like to be involved. Yes. So they saw something in the way that I do my work that would be additive to, uh, to what they were doing. And I think with DDH1, you know, they knew I had a passion for things West Australian. Yes, and they knew that I had a a good sense of how to ensure that a listed company met all of its obligations. And so, in floating a company, when you want to change it from you know one sort of organisation to a different sort, you want a chairman that has seen where it wants to go. So, I think that's what uh, what they found most compelling about me. And I just love their passion for the business and their ability to change and grow and. You know, I think there were probably four or five female employees, and now we're, you know we've probably got about fifty. You know, so in a couple <laughs> of years we're we're pushing forward along that. And isn't it interesting that the drillers are finding that you know having women out in the field is not actually life threatening. That that works okay, and they actually do some things you know pretty well. You know, a bit more attention to detail on some things, a bit more care on care on others. You know, but. Uh, You know, I've had a a fantastic time with DDH1. It's been, of course, a very difficult time with the border closures during COVID and the need to have COVID protocols to ensure that resources production can keep going. And I think that's one area where I don't have too many arguments with the state premier around the closed border, because we did have to make sure that we we didn't end up with a situation like Brazil did, where they lost a lot of production over the COVID period. But I did have an argument after we got sort of around to the sort of Christmas of last year where I think we could have opened up a little bit earlier.
1: Right. Okay. You made that clear.
2: I did (laughs) make that clear. Um, You know, and that's, you know, one of the things I think business people have to do. I think you've got to say what you think. Yes. And be prepared to defend why it is, but also recognise which decisions are yours and which aren't yours. You know, and it was never going to be my decision as to whether the border was going to open. That was always the Premier's decision. And, you know, I I support his decision-making, but I like the fact that he will allow people to, you know, have that different perspective uh, and be respectful of it.
1: Just talking about border closures, and it does bring up the issues of cost inflation and labour. How are you finding it with regards to your experience across these businesses, particularly with DDH1, when you're looking for personnel?
2: Well, at the moment, that is the big issue because the border closures did stop workers at all sorts of different levels. And so it's dislocated the labour market that we knew. It looks very different now. And I think also people are wary. You know, this was something that John Langland, the Agent General, was saying about the feedback that he's been getting from Europe, is it will take a little while for people outside of Western Australia to realise that the borders are really open and they actually will stay open. So there's that concern that if I decide to come to Western Australia, be it for work or for leisure, is there a potential that I might get stuck? Yes. And we all know that trust is built by you saying you to do something and then the observation that you did what you said you were going to do. But that typically people need six experiences of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, six points make a trend. And it's going to take some time for for this to happen for us. So I think it will take a while for our university sector to recover. And so a lot of those students come in, they form a a lot of our casual workforce, the backpackers, the same. And so it is going to take us a while to recover. So we just absolutely need to get a lot of the friction out of our immigration process. We need to work some ways to break the backlog, particularly of the skilled workers that want to come here. Yes, yes. In the health sector, in resources, teaching, you know, these these sorts of things. You know, I think we are very conservative in terms of our acceptance of overseas qualifications and we could become a bit more expansive and that would be helpful. And I think we could take a leaf out of Canada's book and look to see how they're more expansive about the types of people they, you know, believe will um, be able to... Contribute. Contribute, exactly right. So we need to get that thing moving and we need to just set higher numbers. You know, we just don't have
1: the numbers high enough in terms of the migrants that we're prepared to accept. Diane, the last one I wanted to just talk to you about was Zip, the buy now, pay later business. And you, you alluded to it earlier and it's clearly something you enjoy. There's been some massive movement within the sector. Mm. The afterpay transaction with Block. It's an interesting space. Mm. What are you saying there? And, and just tell us how Zip, unfolds relative to what it's doing as a business and how its growth prospects are looking in the current environment with regards to rising interest rates, debts, that sort of thing.
2: Well, I think in that sort of environment, a buy now, pay later offering becomes even more relevant to consumers because you're talking about being able to smooth your purchases and your income. So if you can split a payment into four, you know, that can be very helpful. And so as a result, we're actually seeing some what you might regard as more non-traditional customers, a bit older, you know, coming into the buy now, pay later sector. I think younger people were attracted to offerings like Zip and Afterpay because they're very appified and they're very much a marketplace and a community and that interaction is the way the younger consumer likes to make the choices of the companies that they're going to engage with they're not going to engage with major banks. They're just seen as irrelevant and credit cards are seen as actually a very nasty offering. And so the more control that Buy Now Pay Later gives and the break that it gives on spending, because the limits that you can spend to are quite modest. Right. And you have to demonstrate that you will pay your four payments or whatever your payment cycle is that you determine and you're all all in control of that. So it's very relevant for people that want that different arrangement. But as interest rates go up, the way that a buy now pay later needs to respond to that is to ensure that people, you know, are continuing to make the payments yes. that they've agreed to make, and that we're providing them with the support to understand what that looks like and nudge them into the right behaviour. And that you know we're not allowing people to uh, you know take on more repayments than, than they can effectively make. But I think it's, it's still very relevant. And, you know, Zip is still putting on new customers, you know, at the rate of, you know, more than 35,000 a week. So it's very relevant. Wow. Yeah. So the growth is still going to be there. And the percentage of online commerce that's going through by now Parada is still single digit percentages. And so there's a real growth opportunity there. And for merchants, it brings them into an ecosystem of people that they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with. So it is valuable for the merchants. But Zip is also very much of a mind that it shouldn't just be the merchant that pays for the system. Yes. Because all that will happen at the end of the day is the prices will go up. By the cost of the merchant. Yeah, exactly, law of commerce. And so, you know, having a customer co contribution and a recognition by the end consumer that there is value there. it's very important in the way that Zip does its business. So that's why the growth in Zip will be more modest than an afterpay type offering, but I think it's more sustainable over the longer haul. And that's the task in Zip is now that the market is saying, well, okay, growth is one thing, but we really would like profitable growth only, please, and we'd like you to demonstrate the pathway to profitability. Well, we already have a profitable business in Australia, so we have no problem with that yes. demonstration. Our US business, which, you know, has the opportunity to be quantums larger than our Australian business, given the size of that market, is the one that, you know, we need to demonstrate, you know, what the pathway to profitability is and how how we will get there. So that's our task for the next couple of years. And that's a hard message. (laughs) You <laughs> know, in an environment where people have been used to, you yes. know, oh, last quarter to this quarter, 175%, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all, all looking on the top line growth. And now it's like, yeah, but actually how much revenue did you make and how much of that actually fell to your bottom line? So, you know, an old person with grey hair like me is is pretty valuable in this type <laughs> of world. I'm used to that.
1: When you are chair of an organisation and you're doing everything within your power, everything within your control from a board level and the shareholders' price is going down, how do you react with that instinctively? You know, you're doing what you, you need to do. Everything's in tune, but we can't get the market to react to the stock price. I'm just interested.
2: It's a really difficult thing to face into and you do have to have the conversation as a board and management team together about, well, if we believe we are undervalued, what's our response to that? We know there's a broad range of responses, you know, that start with capital management, you know, if that can fit into your envelope and, you know, that's what's, you know, DDH1 has got a share buyback on on foot at the moment. At other times you might focus on a strategic review. You know, what is it that we see in this company that others don't see or what are the actual gaps? You know, is there something about the strategy? that is not delivering us that success with investors. So how do we pivot the strategy in an appropriate way and announcing a strategic review and bringing some advisors on to look at things? Yes. You know, that also signals to other players out there that there are, you know, opportunities to have conversations about, you know, whatever form of transaction might be there or perhaps it's a joint venture or, you know, you might get offered some assets that people haven't thought to offer you before so you know those are the sorts of things that a board has to do but you, know, you can't be reactive to the share price you know you've got to run the company with management in a way that you know is going to address the risks that are in front of you you know take most advantage of your market opportunities but always keep an expansive and open mind about what the opportunities are for where the company might need to go you know and I think Some of the volatility that we've seen of recent times just shows the importance of being very thoughtful and considered and, you know, taking your time over these things, you know, because we have seen quite a lot of whipsawing in a lot of markets.
1: Sure have, sure have. Your role with the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, I just want to briefly touch on that because I'm mindful of time, but it is a passion and fair for all economically.
2: Yes, CEDA is very interested in equitable opportunity, equitable opportunity for for Australians and making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to participate in the economy. So I I think now is a fabulous time for a non-partisan independent think tank to be putting up some ideas about some of the big ticket items that are going to impact our economy in the longer term. As we're very interested in technology, we're very interested in AI and the ethics of how you operate that effectively. We're very interested in why Australia seems to struggle to have the most dynamic and productive economy that it can have. Very interested in the care sector and why we don't have enough workers there and why they're not paid enough. Yes. And so illuminating these issues, I think, is is absolutely a very valid role, and you can see that it's understood by the you know, sectors, not just corporate Australia, but across not-for-profits and government and so forth, because we have a vibrant membership in CEDAR and it's, you know, the largest membership organisation of its sort in Australia. And members are highly engaged. You know, they really like the conversation and contribute to the research that we're doing. And so, of course, as a non-executive director. How fabulous to be on an economically oriented think tank where you get to sit around the table with some of the best economic thinkers in the nation, with people who have been in very senior public policy positions and to have a team of economists that are generating, you know, absolutely fabulous research. That's very it's different to academic research. It's very pragmatically focused. The idea is for it to be to be very actionable by public policy makers. And so we're trying to help our members to be able to have all of the tools and the skills they need to have the advocacy for the public policy settings they want. So we will talk about menus of public policy settings that would improve things uh, for Australia's economic outcomes. But really, at the end of the day, it's about our hundreds of members being able to understand that public policy landscape and do their own advocacy.
1: Gosh, you would have... So many takeaways from the conversations you have at this level, which... Yeah, they are amazing. And then you t- take it out into your current roles in terms of... Exactly. Well, I mean, what an opportunity. Mm. I've got a couple of questions around, not necessarily related, but what do you think about Bitcoin?
2: I don't think about Bitcoin a lot.
1: Which is that?
2: <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that, you know, I think crypto, all of these areas are not something that Zippy is going to forge into. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think blockchain technology and the idea of distributed ledgers and trust and single source of truth and, you know, very secure methods of, you know, ensuring the provenance of assets and so forth, all of these things that the blockchain technology can provide support for us, you know, absolutely critical to keep that conversation moving. And, and it's, you know, a train that's just on its pathway. But where Bitcoin fits into that, who knows? I don't, I've never bought a Bitcoin. Uh, It's not something I'm engaging with because I don't see that piece of it as relevant to my set of topics.
1: Yeah, no, 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 it's interesting. I'll roll this into a couple of sort of rapid fire style questions, but you think about Bitcoin and then how it's operated in the last year, for example. How would you look at the current environment with regards to gold, interest rates, Bitcoin? If I make it a bit more inclusive into where we <laughs> sit. <laughs>
2: yeah, look, the thing is what we knew in the past and a lot of our long-run averages don't work at the minute, it Yes, appears. A lot of our, you know, what we thought were fundamental truths, things that relate one way to another, correlations, etc., don't seem to be working anymore. So you have to assume that the range of possibilities that, faces you is very different to what you may have seen in your scenario planning in the past. And there is nowhere that that is more evident than in climate change. You know, the range of outcomes that we are looking at, given the way our poor planet is reacting, are very, very different. And that's why, you know, there is so much attention on how do we understand both our transition and our physical climate risks and actually work as boards of directors to address those. I think we all need to start addressing it on an individual level as well.
1: Gosh, well, that is another topic we could talk about. Yeah, we could talk
2: about that for a good couple of hours. Yeah.
1: Do you think though, Diane, when you look at where all the businesses you're across and and all your experience, how do you think the next sort of 24 months, 36 months is going to end up with regards to possibility of recession, interest rates, inflation, it's in the paper every day. but From your experience and what you're seeing, what do you think is going to unfold?
2: I'm really compelled by some of the analysis that seems to suggest that we're going to have this very short, sharp downturn that's going to be caused by the supply chain dislocation that's fed into inflation. And that we are going to, however, come out of that very rapidly and that even by the third calendar quarter next year, we might see interest rates you know, being cut again. I like it because it feels um, a way more optimistic set of circumstances than some of the others you're hearing where people are predicting, you know, deep recession for, you know, two, three years. Why do I want the optimistic outcome? You know, I look at COVID. We were never going to have the V-shaped recovery. Boy, we had a V-shaped recovery. Yes. So I think V-shape is more likely than not. So I'm, I'm hoping for a V-shaped experience over the next 12 months.
1: Thanks for that answer. It's definitely a topic of conversation across governments, across reserve banks. And I think when you look at what's going on with everyday Australians, it's very topical as well because the inflation is having a, a big impact. The cost of living is going up. Mm. Oil, have you got a view on energy in terms of the clean energy and the transition in this space?
2: It will happen faster than we
1: expected. Keeping course, in mind, I do know you have a role with yeah, AGL. Yeah, that's right.
2: You know, as an AGL director, you know, you know, AGL has been on a decarbonisation mission for a very long time now. It's very hard for me to say that without people sort of giving me a wry smile because we are the largest, you know, coal-fired generator in the country and therefore responsible for a lot of emissions. But that means that we have the biggest opportunity To make a positive difference and with, you know, a number of the units at the Torrens gas-fired power station in South Australia and units at Liddell, you know, brown coal-fired generation in the Hunter Valley already closing, you know, AGL has been doing a, a lot in this arena. But certainly one of the things that we are seeing at AGL is that the uptake of carbon neutral, you know, our green products with consumers has accelerated. Right of recent times, particularly since the election. And given that there are affordability concerns and to take a green product will generally cost you a bit more, that is an interesting data point Yes, about what people want and what people will accept. I think we will be slower in Australia than we otherwise would be because of the size of our market and, and how hard it is going to be for us to access stocks of electronic vehicles. And, of course, not everybody can afford a Tesla. no. So we need those lower price point cars coming in, and we are always going to be a niche market a long way from where a number of these are being produced. So maybe, you know, we're going to have to look to the Chinese market for our stocks of EVs. But the sooner we can get that dynamic working and have more EVs being purchased than, you know, petrol combustion engines, life will be a lot better. But the technology is just that little bit slow, you know, particularly battery technology to pair with our world-leading, you know, rooftop solar penetration because at the moment I think batteries are just not quite mature enough. You know, there's still safety concerns, combustion, you know, these sorts of things. Yes. But uh, I just don't quite know when the tipping
1: point is going to turn up here but it's sooner rather than later. It's very interesting. One last one, social media. (laughs) What do you think about social media in terms of the next generation and where that's going to end up? We know that it's such an integral part of, of life. I don't have to look at my kids and the way they interact with it.
2: Yes, I look at my younger nephew and the way he interacts with social media. But, you know, even my older nephew who's 31, you know, when we talk about, oh, do you know such and such a person, the first thing he does is pull out LinkedIn and have a look and <laughs> yeah. see. And I've learned to do it too. You know, I find it really, really helpful. But the thing I think with social media is younger people, they're just so much more open. You know, transparency um, means a very different thing to them than it does to people of my generation. And I see it particularly around salaries. Right. Now, we were always told to hide our salary and tell everybody else about it. You might tell your best friend, you know, but it was all in a bit of a whisper. Not so, you know, the younger people that work at Zip, they think we should just publish everybody's salaries. Now as a non-executive director, <laughs> my salary is published in the annual report so it, and it hasn't been life threatening for me. It's worked okay. So I think <laughs> this is where social media you know, is showing us that people are happy to be more transparent. But we also do need to be careful of it because when you've got something that's ubiquitous as this, there are bad actors all over the place. And you know, at the moment I'm sure we're all being driven nuts with the smishing text messages that we're getting. I like it, you know, fishing, spear fishing, and now we've got smishing, you know, SMS ishing. <laughs> where, you know, I, I get I get one the other day. Your latitude payment has failed. Okay, I don't have a latitude account, yes. so I'm not expecting this text message delete. Yeah. You know, but not everybody does that, you know. And a classic fishing one I got the other day, your HBF tax refund is available. Click here to find out how much it is. Now that was an HBF internal yes. fishing training exercise and luckily the chairman didn't get sucked in But you know what the horrible thing was? I knew immediately <laughs> it, was a, it was a fishing training yeah. email. I yeah. knew that. But I still wanted to click. I actually wanted to see what my number was. But I was like, yeah, fishing.
1: Yeah, delete.
2: Yeah, so social media is a a fascinating thing, but, I, you know, it's with us to stay. We need to learn to to use it in ways that we want to and protect ourselves from it when we need to.
1: Yes. It's a very interesting time in that respect. I want to finish up in terms of, I know you're still passionate about sports. What sports do you love? You are a passionate skier, I know that much. Yeah,
2: I like my downhill skiing, um, although climate
1: change is making that difficult
2: because you never know when the snow is going to turn up. I'm very fond of the Utah Jazz NBA men's basketball team. Right. But, you know, like I will watch pretty much any sport and really enjoy it. I'm a docker's tragic. Yeah. Um, I don't follow them as much as I should, but, you know, I definitely want them to be incredibly successful. But, you know, I happily watch bike riding. You know, we all get sleep deprived during the Tour de France. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so sport is um, a fun thing, but only if you don't know who's going to win. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and what is an incredibly busy schedule for you? How do you how do you escape? What's the downtime?
2: Uh, well, I've got a place down in Margaret River that I enjoy very much. You know, the drive down there is a, a good, you know, release release for me. And you know i I work out. I've got a trainer that I have a lot of respect for, who's keeping me fit. You know, the we've got certain goals to make sure that I'll not ever have to have my knees chopped or my, you know, hips done, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see how we do over the next 20 years. I've got a really vibrant set of friends and, and particularly girlfriends, you know, a lot of whom are fellow members of Chief Executive Women, who like to do the same sort of things I do, you know, like good wine, like eating out, like travelling, yes. um, you know, and like to talk about interesting topics, you know, so uh, I, I feel very fortunate with the life I have.
1: Well, that's not a bad place for me to say thank you. What an a- absolutely wonderful chat. Oh, Tim, it's thank you very much. My pleasure. It only happens because of the good questions. Oh, look, uh, there's a couple of things. On behalf of Euros Hartley, I so just want to say thanks for the time because the time is valuable for you and, and we don't take it for granted. So thank you, firstly. And then congratulations on what has been a wonderful career to date. It's obvious when we talk that, your career seems like it's going to go for infinity, but you, you love what you do. You're passionate <laughs> yeah, do. about it. You can see the way you, you react when you talk about the companies you're involved in. You speak from the heart. And, and it's been a real treat to be able to hear this firsthand. And I just want to also say that we will have such a great lot of feedback around what you've been able to impart because it's not every day that we get to hear it. I really do appreciate you being able to share with us. Uh, Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Good on you, Diane, and all the very best. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at EurosHartleys.com or visit our website at www. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.